From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Molly Reynolds from the Brooklyn Institution returns to talk about Republicans' proposed tax reform. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Legislatively, 2017 has not been a successful year for the Republican Congress. With control of both legislative chambers as well as the White House, they do not have much to show for their efforts. They are perhaps noted more for the inability to repeal or replace the Affordable Care Act than for anything they've passed thus far. But that could soon change. On paper, Republicans have the numbers to pass tax reform, but questions remain. Can Republicans pass legislation that meet the expectations of the more strident members within the House of Representatives without being a pill too bitter to swallow for members of the Senate? Can the Senate stay within its rules so that tax reform does not increase the deficit, which would require 60 votes instead of a simple majority? Can they sell their supporters on a bill that potentially places corporate interests over average citizens? To grapple with these questions and others, we're happy to welcome back Molly Reynolds of the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. Molly Reynolds, welcome back to The Public Morality. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Well, we wanted to bring you back because of what seems like uh, an ongoing conversation uh, at least publicly, uh, this being touted as tax reform. But before we get into the specific differences between the House uh, version and the Senate version, um, what you've seen thus far, would you classify this as tax reform? It's a great question, and I really appreciate uh, that being where we start this conversation. Because I think it's actually something that we need to be talking about a little bit more than we are. And, I would say there are um, there are a few things in this tax legislation um, that you you could call reform, but I think um, it's unfair to say that this is a tax reform package in kind of the truest sense of the word. As I um, view what is um, the bill that uh, Congress has been working on, I see it as having a few core goals, um, largely reducing um, the corporate tax rate, um, making changes to the estate tax to reduce the number of people who um, have to to pay the estate tax, either by um, eliminating it permanently or um, increasing the amount um, that's required for the estate tax kicks in. Uh, And so I see those as kind of the central goals. And then there are a number of other things that are in the bill that are around those central goals um, that help pay for um, the central things that uh, the Republicans want to do. But fundamentally, if we think about um, tax reform as something that was lower rates but brought in the tax base, I think this bill that they've been working on really falls short on that criteria. Mm-hmm. You know, w- one of my biases is that if you're a Democratic Republic, that the the, that the pursuit, the path you choose is 
is important and sometimes more important than the actual destination. And I raise that because it, it, it seems like the current path that the Republican majority in Congress is pursuing is very reminiscent of the path that was unsuccessful with the uh, was dismantling the Affordable Care Act. And so there's sort of this notion to fast-track things, which feels like behind closed doors. And if you would, talk about this process as it relates to tax legislation and just the manner in which the Republican majority seems to be going about it and doing the people's business. Yeah, so there are two really important process issues that I'd like to touch on. So one of them is um, what's known as the budget reconciliation process. And this is the same set of congressional procedures that Republicans used to try unsuccessfully to repeal and replace uh, the Affordable Care Act earlier this year. And they're a special set of procedures that basically um, prohibit the possibility of a filibuster of certain legislation in the Senate, which means that instead of uh, potentially needing 60 votes in order to end debate and clear the threat of filibuster, you'd be able to get something to the Senate with only, um, only a simple majority, only 51 votes. And so when Republicans chose to do that, to use those procedures for um, this tax bill, I think it really had the effect of making clear that they weren't really interested in working with Democrats. They thought that there was um, a package that they could get um, a majority of their own um, members of Congress to vote for. Um, from the Democrats' perspective, when Republicans say, you know, we're going to use these procedures that mean uh, that we don't need any Democratic votes, but also sort of absolves Democrats of much responsibility of needing to work with Republicans. Um, so it really kind of hardens the partisan lines. Um, why would why would Democrats cooperate with Republicans if Republicans have said, you know, we, um, we're going to do this in a way that we don't need to talk to you? Um, so that's one, I think, important um, process point. Um, it's, a, it's a choice to embrace partisan lawmaking. And the other process point um, that gets to something that you mentioned is this idea of this happening behind closed doors. And I think that's, um, that's also really important. And we see that a lot in Congress, not just when Congress chooses to use these reconciliation procedures that forestall the possibility of a filibuster, but we, we increasingly see kind of centralized decision-making that happens um, uh, increasingly out of the public eye. And part of that is because for congressional leaders, um, when they're working on a complicated bill where they think that there are a lot, uh, there might be a lot of interest from interest groups in the content of the bill, uh, there's an advantage to uh, keeping it as kind of the process as secretive and controlled as possible. Because you, you put it out into the open, uh, you have uh, the chances that um, individual members or uh, interest groups on all sides uh, try to uh, try to take apart a carefully constructed deal increases. And obviously tax policy is complicated. It's, um, it's full of uh, provisions that lobbyists are really interested in. One person's um, tax break is someone else's wasteful loophole. Um, and so I think that in that sense, what we're seeing, uh, what we're seeing here in terms of the, um, the closed um, restricted process is consistent with a lot of what we've seen um, in Congress in recent years, even above and beyond the choice to use a particular party line process. You know, in, in keeping with your, your last answer, you, you know, the old axiom that politics makes for strange bedfellows, I guess one might conclude that that 
uh, phrase originated uh, with tax policy because you could have a strange coalition supporting this uh, legislation and, and, and uh, as well as proposing it. Would that be correct? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that one thing, and I think that um, in which we look back at previous um, tax policy making efforts, that's, um, that's certainly the case. I think in this particular round, we've seen Republicans try really hard to, uh, in part because they're using this process that uh, means that Democrats are pretty unlikely to work with them, also because the choices they've made about what to put in the bill uh, make it pretty easy for Democrats to stand in unified opposition. You know, if you're working on a bill that um, has a core, um, you know, reductions uh, in how much uh, corporations and wealthy individuals are going to pay in taxes, and um, at, as a trade-off, you have um, tax cuts for lower and middle-income folks that will expire, that, that aren't permanent, um, so it makes, it, it's been easy for Democrats to oppose this. So I think on this particular bill, we've seen mostly uh, Republicans trying to keep all of their members in line and trying to avoid maybe some of this um, this strange bedfellows dynamic where if they opened it up and had a more um, open and deliberative process, we might start to see um, some interesting uh, coalitions of uh, uh, House members and senators come together around particular parts of the bill. You know, we're still talking about the process. Um, I'm wondering that as I'm deeming the behind closed door process, and I don't know if you've given us any thought, but I wonder, does the um, the Senate race with Alabama uh, Republican Senator Roy Moore sort of amplify this need to fast track this legislation? I wonder if you've given that any thought. Yeah, so I think, um, I think the desire to um, have this bill proceed as quickly as possible was pretty acute for Republicans even before uh, the last couple of weeks in the Alabama Senate. So for Republicans, um, you know, we're, it's November um, of 2017. We're about a year out from the midterm congressional elections. There are lots of reasons structurally why Republicans might be concerned about their position heading into the midterms. We know, for example, that um, it is almost always the case that uh, the president's party loses seats in a midterm election. Um, there are a couple of exceptions, but going back throughout the post uh World War II period. That's been a, a really strong pattern in American politics. Um, obviously, President Trump is unpopular, so that doesn't bode well for Republicans. Add in the fact that Republicans failed at their first big major legislative push of the year on the Affordable Care Act. And the fact that a number of Republican uh, members of Congress have said publicly that um, a lot of their uh, their donors, those who help fund their re-election campaigns, have threatened to withhold donations if they don't um, finish work on a tax bill. Um, obviously, we, we have no way of knowing whether that's true. We can't observe the counterfactual, but um, so you sort of have all those factors in the mix. Um, you have the, the idea that the closer it gets to the election, the harder it is to get anything done, tax uh, policy or otherwise. So they, you have kind of had that stew brewing in Washington that was getting Republicans to try to move as quickly as possible. And then you add in this dynamic in the Alabama Senate race, where on December 12th, um, uh, there's a possibility that the Republican conference in the Senate will get one vote smaller. Um, it'll uh, narrow their already narrow margin of control even further. And so I do think that that's, um, that's part of uh, what's kind of driving them to go um, as quickly as they possibly can. 
but that was uh, that was already in the mix before um, the Alabama Senate race took the particular turn that it had. So with all that said, um, spend a moment, if you would, to, to discuss how the legislation that the House of Representatives passed and what you believe um, the, will be the end product for the Senate and how they might differ and, and where do they coalesce? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, and the place that there are some significant differences between the two bills. Um, one that I'll be watching particularly closely to see how it shakes out is um, how does the final or a final bill, assuming the Senate is able to get to um, 51 votes, on um, on a measure, um, how does the final bill treat um, the state and local uh, tax deductions? The ability of individuals to deduct from their federal income tax liability what they pay as state and local taxes. The reason this is really important is because this was one of the major sticking points in the House. Um, so I think that folks who have been watching the bill move to the House. Uh, were, uh, were, were pretty impressed with how quickly Republicans were able to get it done. It was about two weeks from when they rolled out their formal proposals to passage. But um, probably the biggest area of conflict that continued um, during that debate was this idea of what to do about the state and local tax deduction, and that's in part because there are a number of Republican members um, from states that have high state and local taxes and high property taxes. And those tend to be blue states, correct? Yeah, so places like California, New York, New Jersey are probably the three that people point to a lot. Um, they have constituents who will be um, who will be hurt by eliminating um, this deduction. So there's kind of a carefully constructed compromise in the House to get as many of those members back on board as they can. Um, the Senate's version of the bill repeals the state and local tax deduction entirely, at least in the current draft. And so if what, we, if what we're thinking about is what happens if the Senate's able to pass this bill, what happens next? That could be a real sticking point in getting the two chambers to agree um, on, uh, on, a, on a fundamental um, version of, um, of the bill that they both approve and send to the president. Um, the other kind of um, – there's some other differences. Um, there are differences in how uh, the two bills approach um, some higher education-related provisions, um, including uh, whether uh, um, tuition waivers um, that graduate students get – in um, a provision that's gotten some attention, whether that counts as taxable income, whether um, you can deduct medical expenses. So there are lots of provisions um, that are in the bill, uh, in either the House bill or the Senate bill, that have, you know, really strong, if small, constituencies around them. And uh, one question will be, if the, if the timetable keeps moving as quickly as it has been, will groups um, who care about those provisions have time to mobilize and try to get the bill changed to um, to reflect their um, their preferences. Um, you know, one of the things, that, as I recall, um, with the uh, unsuccessful repeal of the Affordable Care Act, was there were a number uh, of members, um, either in the Senate or the House, who said, "Well, let's just get something passed." And we can sell it in in, uh, in the reconciliation process. Is that is that a viable option here? Yeah, it's um it it'll be really interesting to watch because um, uh, what you just described is something that I have taken to calling punting as a legislative <laughs> strategy. So in the um, in the case of the Affordable Care Act, 
we saw this, um, we saw Republicans in the Senate try this and fail. So basically at the end of July, when they were trying to get something passed, their very last kind of strategic move was to say to the Republican conference in the Senate, look, we just have to keep this going. We have to keep our momentum up. We can't let this die. And um, so they were going to pass a really stripped down bill, and they told their members, we're going to go to conference at the House. That's the term that we use for formal interchamber um, negotiations in the House and the Senate disagree on a version of a bill. And so Republican leaders are saying, look, we're going go to we're go to conference. We're going to fix this in conference. That didn't end up being a sufficiently persuasive argument for um, enough Republican senators. And then you saw um, uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and John McCain vote against um, even that proposal. Um, and so I think we see a little bit of the same dynamic happening here. Um, there are, uh, when the House was debating its bill, I think there are some things in there that some House members still don't like, but didn't necessarily want to, um, didn't want to vote against the bill to kind of stop all, um, all this forward momentum. Um, we may well see a similar argument um, play out in, um, in the Senate. Um, one constraint in the Senate is that um, because of the, um, the choice to use these special reconciliation procedures, um, there are some pretty uh, strong constraints on what you can put in a reconciliation bill. There are some restrictions on um, how much the bill can um, increase the federal deficit and when those deficit increases are allowed. So they're not, um, they, they, they don't have all the levers available to pull. Um, they're, they're a little bit restrictive. And so I do think that um, next week when um, Congress comes back from the Thanksgiving recess and the Senate is projected to take up the bill, we may see, um, again, some arguments made in the Senate that just say, look, you, we have to get this out of the Senate, and then we can fix, um, we can fix it in conference. The question will be, do senators who have problems with the bill trust that that will actually happen? And do they trust that if it happens, um, their disputes uh, with the House will be resolved um, in their favor, or will um, Senate, uh, Senate negotiators have to um, yield to the preferences of the House? If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with uh, Molly Reynolds, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. You, you mentioned some of the uh, rules of the Senate that, that um, are unique. Um, spend a moment, if you time, uh, talking about some of those rules as it relates to the deficit and, and how the Senate has tried to overcome any of those uh, proposed challenges. Yeah, so there's two important deficit-related constraints. Um, that are imposed on this um, process by the choice to use um, the budget reconciliation process. Um, one of them is that the bill, the tax bill, um, over the next 10 years um, can't increase the federal deficit by more than $1.5 trillion. So whatever they put in the bill um, over the next 10 years uh, Nonpartisan congressional budget scorekeepers um, on the Joint Committee on, tax on Taxation have to um, uh, they have to score the bill as coming in under that 1.5 trillion dollar uh, limit um, in order for it to be eligible to move through the Senate um, without the possibility of a filibuster. The second um, important constraint is that after those 10 years are up, the effects of the bill um, can't increase the deficit at all. 
So the, under the reconciliation rules, a reconciliation bill can't increase the federal deficit at all outside of um, that 10-year window. And the way that the Senate, which is where these rules apply, um, has chosen to sort of um, address this problem is by um, taking virtually all of the changes that the bill makes on the individual side and setting those to expire at the end of those 10 years. On the corporate and business side, most of the changes are permanent, so they persist outside of um, that initial 10-year window. Um, this is this sets up a sort of interesting political challenge for Republicans, which is that they have to they have to try and sell the idea of temporary um, tax benefits for individuals and permanent tax benefits to corporations to a public that's very skeptical of the idea that they will ever see personally the benefits from reducing um, taxes on corporations. So there's a poll out either last week or the week before that suggested that um, a wide majority um, of Americans, including a wide majority of Republicans, when asked if your employer were to get a tax cut, do you think you would ever see any of that in increase to your own pay? A wide majority of Americans say no. It doesn't, even if you cut my employer's taxes, um, I'm not actually going to see any of that in my paycheck. So that's a real political challenge for Republicans to try to sell a bill that does this. The way that they've chosen to try and do this, and we'll have to see if it works, is to say, look, you know, we have these individual um, changes, uh, changes on the individual side of the tax code. We're going to set those to expire, but they'll never really expire. Congress won't want in 10 years to actually see people's taxes increase, so they'll, um, they will take advantage of that opportunity to extend uh, the tax cuts. And we've seen sort of mixed results on this in the past. Um, whether setting up that kind of what it's meant to set up that kind of cliff um, for for tax policy, and but that's kind of that's where Republicans are hanging their um, rhetorical hat here. And I, and I realize um, that um, tax policy was something that the Republicans ran on um, repeatedly. I, I guess my question to you is: What is the rationale, in your view, for tax policy in this? current moment is the belief that will it'll spur growth or or do you see it at this point as a solution in search of a problem yeah so i think that it would it really depends on um who in the republican party you ask what answer to that question um they give you so i mean we talk a lot i think um rightly in the in the current environment about the diversity of views within the Republican Party and Congress on lots of issues. And I think kind of the motivating force behind um, tax policy is one of them. Uh, I think there are some uh, there are some people who do have a genuine belief in um, sort of supply-side economics and the idea that if you cut, uh, if you cut rates, it will drive um, economic growth, and that will be great for everyone. Um, I think there are... Um, there are other people who would probably say that they um, they are kind of motivating uh, purpose here is that um, if we have um, if we raise less in taxes, it uh, means that we will have um, a smaller federal government, we'll engage in less federal spending. Um, people who are kind of concerned about about um, the federal the size of the federal government. So I think there's a, there are a number of different. Um, uh, motivations that are that people are coming to this debate with, 
And I think um, it's part of why if you kind of look at the longer time horizon, not just the past um, couple of weeks, it's actually been kind of challenging for Republicans to come up with um, with a plan that they can get um, a simple majority of their own party um, in both the House and the Senate. And importantly, it remains to be seen if they've written a bill in the Senate that can get uh, a simple majority of senators. Um, but if we think kind of over the broader context, it's been it's been challenging for them to get to something that they think that um, a majority will vote for. And part of that is because different people in the Republican Party and different Republican members of Congress think about this question differently. You know, looking just at the politics that you just articulated, uh, it seems to me at least uh, that the Senate really has less room to maneuver than the House, not only in securing uh, a, a majority, but, but something that could work in reconciliation. That's absolutely right. So, um, And those are, those are both um, important dynamics. So there are both the rules that make uh, that place significantly more constraints on what the Senate um, can do through the process um, that so it's sort of a it's, a it's a cost benefit so you get the benefit of needing only 51 votes instead of 60 but it comes to the cost um, you have to operate within constraints that are um, less present in the regular legislative process um, so that's certainly part of it and then as you as you mentioned the size of the Senate's majority is much smaller than the size of the House um, so the size of the House majority right now for Republicans is about average in the post-1980 period. Um, so we've seen some larger majorities, some smaller majorities, but looks, it looks about normal for, um, for, the last, um, for the last 40 years. Whereas in the Senate, um, the Republicans only have 52 seats. Um, and so they can, um, they can only afford to lose two of their own party members um, before uh, – they, um, so they'd be unable to pass a bill on a full party line vote, um, which is part of, again, why the Alabama Senate race has kind of gotten folded into this, this, broader, um, this broader debate, because that could um, have the effect of denying them one of their current 52 votes. So it's, it's both kind of a procedural, um, they're limited more pro, um, proce- both procedurally and politically. Can the United States, in your view, afford the tax policy as it's being presented? If you put both bills together and and shake it out, what you think would be the end product? Can we afford that? Uh, It's a it's a good question. Um, I'm not I'm not an economist. Um, I have lots of smart um, economics colleagues here at Brookings who I'm I'm sure have um, (laughs) clearer views on this than I do. Um, I think for me, the biggest thing to um, to take away is the fact that um, the, the way that this bill is structured um, introduces a fair amount of uncertainty for, uh, particularly on the individual side, um, going forward. Because they're um, using this particular legislative process that means that the bill can't be projected to increase the deficit after 10 years, it's led them to, um, to need to, to uh, set the individual tax provisions to expire which means that over the next 10 years, uh, particularly at the end of that window, there'll be a lot of uncertainty for individuals about kind of where, uh, where their taxes are going to be going. Um, and it, it'll, uh, uh, it'll also, you know, depending on which kind of individual um, tax deductions and credits go away, people will have to 
you know, um, respond to that in um, important ways. And so I think that for me, um, that's a really important takeaway is that it's going to really introduce, um, I think, a significant amount of uncertainty on the individual side of the you know, that, that seems like a really heavy lift for a Republican Congress. Not, not that um, the Democratic approval rating in Congress is in the stratosphere, but, but the Republican Congress is, is at all-time dismal lows. And that seems to be a lot of trust that we will take care of you down the road while we're taking care of corporations permanently up front. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely, like I said, an interesting um, and potentially challenging political choice for them. They are, um, uh, in my view, like uh, privileging their immediate political needs, which are to get something done on, on taxes um, and to get something done on taxes as quickly as possible over a much longer-term um, set of political leaders. And, and that's not unusual for uh, for Congress. Um, we, we don't usually think of Congress as having a, uh, a very, being very good at um, thinking for the long term or planning over a long time horizon, particularly in the contemporary Congress. I think we expect that Congress is going to be really focused, uh, particularly the majority party leadership, on what do we do now to make sure that we continue to be in the majority in after the next election. And so in that sense, what um, they're up to, I think, is really consistent with that idea. But I do think that um, it could have um, problematic long-term effects for them, particularly given you know, how unpopular this text still is with the public. Is there any way that the proposed um, tax reform, which at least... Uh, as the, poll, the polling I've seen is not really that popular with the American people, uh, re- Republican and Democrat, I might add. Uh, how does it avoid placing pressure on some programs that are quite popular, um, specifically, say, Medicare, Social Security, and, and I would add, in, in recent months, a year of the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, so that, I think, is something that we're just now starting, really, to talk about. Um, part of that um, involves the uh, kind of looming specter of some potential um, cuts to some of these programs if this bill were, uh, if the tax bill were to pass. Um, Republicans have said, don't worry about that. Um, We have the ability to to get around that. Um, There's there's no no concern. Um, I talk about whether uh, people should um, have faith in Republicans' ability to get um, some Democrats to cooperate with them to avoid um, avoid some coming cuts. Um, two things like that right there. Um, I think that, and I, it's, um, I like that you brought up the increasing popularity of the Affordable Care Act, because one thing that we've seen um, over uh, particularly this year is that once you've given uh, people certain government benefits, um, it's much harder to take them away. It's much harder. People are much more sensitive to losses than they are to gains. And so the idea that um, Republicans might try and use the uh, uh, so pass the tax bill, less revenue is coming in, um, and they might try to use that as a springboard to make spending cuts um, is something that I think we should talk about. But I think that will be politically challenging for them. Because it's very, um, as we've learned, it's very hard 
to get people on board with eliminating something that they already have, um, and in the case of things like Medicare and Social Security, um, the individuals who benefit from those programs um, tend to be quite politically active. So um, older people, uh, retired folks, um, uh, vote at quite high rates, um, frequently for Republicans. And so to, um, to set that possibility up, I think, could be um, politically challenging for them down the road. Looking at your magical crystal ball that you have under your desk at the Brookings <laughs> Institute, I, I, institution, I, I wonder, um, how, can these two bills be reconciled in your view? Or will uh, they? I'm yeah, putting you on the my, spot. <laughs> um, I, uh, I don't have a crystal ball. If I did have a crystal ball, I would be in a different line of work. Um, <laughs> but uh, to, to the extent that I can sort of see a path forward, I'm expecting that they will be that Republicans will be able to get something done. Exactly what that looks like, I think, is still a little unclear. How much of um, a final compromise comes from what the House already passed versus what the Senate um, is hoping to pass this coming week? I don't know. And when exactly that happens, so it could happen very quickly. Um, it could be the case, for example, that the Senate passes its bill and then um, House. Republican leaders say to their rank and file members, look, this is what we have to do. We have to pass the Senate bill. We can't make any changes to it because of the procedural restrictions in the Senate and because of the really small Senate majority. Like, this is, this is the best that we can do. And they try to just get their members to swallow what the Senate's already passed. That's a, that's a possibility, in which case we can see things move extremely quickly. Or if the Senate um, has trouble getting to... 50 votes on its bill, and um, if some House members um, really do object to some of the things that are in the Senate's version, and we have to go into a period of negotiations, um, I think it could take um, it could take longer to get it done. So, my sort of overall um, expectation is that we'll get something done, uh, but what exactly it looks like and when it happens um, are still big open questions for me. Molly Reynolds, Brookings Institution, thank you for joining us once again on the Public Rally. We've much enjoyed it. Much appreciated your wisdom. It's my pleasure to be here. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. That was Molly Reynolds of the Brookings Institution. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. Before that, the nation recently celebrated the 154th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Listen as it is recited by former President Barack Obama. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of it as a final resting place for those who died here, that the nation might live. This we may, in all propriety, do. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have hallowed it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here. While it can never forget what they did here, it is rather for us, the living, 
we here be dedicated to the great task remaining before us. That from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve these dead shall not have died in vain. That the nation shall have a new birth of freedom. And that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. classic rendition of St. Louis Blues.
Somebody's fence. Wait a minute. Now wait, don't go berserk. Now wait a minute. What would uh, a little picket of somebody's fence? I'm gonna whip you all over your big head until you learn some sense. <laughs> your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh,